On December 7, 1941, Japan, like its infamous Axis partners, struck first and declared war afterwards. Costly to our Navy was the loss of war vessels, airplanes and equipment, but more costly to Japan was the effectiveness of its foul attack in immediately unifying America in its determination to fight and win the war thrust upon it and to win the peace that will follow. The bombing of Pearl Harbor on the morning of December 7, 1941, forced America into a confrontation that prior to that point had been seen as an external issue. The vast majority of Americans saw no reason to involve themselves in a conflict in some far-flung land like France or the South Pacific. America's involvement in World War II spanned from 1941 to 1945, but that period would influence American culture and economics for decades to come. Where could come here? China has more than 200 confirmed cases of coronavirus, it's called, which produces pneumonia-like symptoms. Three people have already died from this illness, which has spread to at least three other Asian countries. Meanwhile, flights carrying more Americans from Wuhan arrived in the U.S. last night, and passengers are quarantined at military bases in California, Texas, and Nebraska. China has identified the cause of the mysterious pneumonia outbreak in Wuhan city. And it's from the same family that caused the deadly SARS epidemic 17 years ago. It's a new type of coming up and right here in New York, thousands of people are self-quarantining at home after they may have come in contact with the coronavirus. A 12th fatality has now been reported here in the United States, the latest in Washington state. In a matter of days, Dr. Lee Wenliang went from treating patients to becoming one. But if action had been taken when he and others started sounding alarms, the severity of the outbreak might have been understood sooner. Struggling to On New Year's Eve in 2019, the World Health Organization picked up chatter from an official Chinese channel of a, quote, pneumonia of unknown cause in the city of Wuhan. The next day, the world greeted the new year and the WHO dispatched a team to begin coordinating a response. But that response came too late. Within a few short weeks, cases of the viral pneumonia, now officially carrying the designation Coronavirus Disease 2019, or simply COVID-19, had spread to virtually every corner of the globe. By March, the rampant spread would force a shutdown of most international travel as countries closed their borders in an attempt to curtail the spread. During World War II, through tight control of the media, economy, and social messaging, the U.S. government was able to instill in the American people a sense of collectivism. Simply put, we were all in it together, and if one of us failed, then we all failed. But during the COVID-19 pandemic, that sense of collective responsibility has seemed to vanish. Even while the coronavirus death count climbed, public health guidance from the federal government was viewed with doubt and skepticism by a large swath of the American public. So what happened? Was there ever really a true sense of national collective responsibility? Or was it just an artificial concept enforced by the federal government during World War II to ensure obedience? Or has our sense of community as a nation really just degraded in the ensuing 80 years? I'm Jonah Chester. I'm your host, Jennifer Fields, and you are listening to Refrangible, 
a production of the Center for Design and Material Culture at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Over the next four episodes, we're going to use material culture practices and methods to explore four key objects. In this episode, we're going to be taking a look at a series of meal planning booklets published as part of the U.S. government's National Wartime Nutrition Program. The booklets were published during World War II in an attempt to help housewives make the most of their allotted rations. But in addition to recipes on how to make jellied pickle bead ring, these pamphlets can provide a glimpse into how Americans viewed collective responsibility during times of crisis. Before we jump into the rest of the episode, Jennifer, actually, I have a bit of a question here. Uh, what the hell does refrangible mean? And for that matter, we should probably explain a little bit more about what exactly material culture is. Let's start with the tough one first. Let's get science in first, right? Refrangible is the ability to reflect light. So when you think about refraction, it's like going through a prism and then the rays, the light that shoots back, that's the process of it being refracted, right? Refrangible is that ability to reflect light. So material culture, study of objects and things, our relationships with objects, it's looking at history through objects, not the history of an object. If you put the two together, refrangible is shining a light on an object, and what we see and what we glean from that is the refrangible aspect of that object. Does that make any sense? Because it made sense in my head when I said it. That makes sense to me. That makes perfect sense to me. So if I were to if I were to maybe boil down material culture into an unfairly straightforward description, it's the cross-section of design, art, and culture. Is that a good read? Yes. And I would add it's our relationship to those things. What is it about the design of it? What is it about this object that draws us in? Look around you. You've designed the place you live in a particular way that pleases you, right? Maybe you have close to you your grandmother's glasses or I have my father's thermos that I keep close to me. It's a Stanley thermos that he took to work every day when he was working. And I will go as far as to say this. Material culture is important because it gives us a point to start a conversation. We know what happened January 6th in our nation's capital, right? I would be willing to bet you that there are people in that crowd who our political beliefs could not be more opposed, who have the very same thermos that I have that my father carried. It's a way for us to create conversations. It's a way for us to create some sort of community where we might have difficulty finding other ways to be in some sort of agreement. If we can both agree that a chair is a chair, that's a good point. That's a good place to start a conversation. So it's not just about our relationships to objects and how those objects interact with us. It's also how those objects can serve as a bridge and an illustrator of our relationships with other people? By George, I think you've got it. So now that we've got that explanation sort of out of the way and we all have a better understanding of material culture, uh, where do you want to start? We've sort of chosen a pretty big topic here. I think the best place to start is Arkansas in 1943. Mostly I remember when I got to be a senior that my folks, uh, we had moved from a little community and they had a buggy a horse and buggy because of the gas and so on. And uh, so when I was in a senior, we borrowed Dad's wagon and his horse and 
the senior class went out and collected newspapers for the war effort. My dad had two sisters and they would send us clothes when they would quit wearing them. They would send them to us. And this was a suit uh, that they sent the Navy as a kind of a royal blue. And then this was a pink. But anyway, it, I had to make it over so I'd have a dress for graduation. And that was from my dad's sisters that they sent me during the war. Nylon hose. <laughs> no, that's one thing we, we really had to, they'd have a sale ever so often and boy, you had to stand in line to get the nylons. My dad, even when we couldn't wear them, he's telling us to go get some hose and put on our legs. He didn't want us to go bare-legged. <laughs> well, you've got a, a pencil like you would use an eyebrow pencil. You would draw it up the back of your leg to make it look like you had hose. <laughs> I will say that uh, Probably it was during this time that we lived where we had to, to get to school. We had to walk across a log, across a creek, and my baby brother fell in and lost his shoes, and he, a teacher gave him her stamps so he could get a pair of shoes to wear to school. You had to really be careful with those stamps you got you had to have stamps for food, you had to have stamps for clothes. My folks were really careful with everything, you know, with seven kids. You got To get a better understanding of how the U.S. approaches public health and nutrition, we need to take a step back to the mid-19th century. Dr. Andrew Ruiz is a fellow in the Department of Medical History and Bioethics at UW-Madison. He says that the U.S. can trace its modern public health infrastructure all the way back to the 1860s, when the federal government first established the U.S. Department of Agriculture. As he explains, public health initiatives have their deepest roots in public nutrition programs, nutrition programs that bear strong similarities to projects like the Health for Victory Club guides. A lot of nutrition public health work runs through the Department of Agriculture in the U.S. Um, and as you might know, the Department of Agriculture was established um, in 1862. And one of its sort of main charges was to acquire and diffuse information about subjects connected with agriculture, which sort of makes sense for a Department of Agriculture. But not too long after that, in the 1880s, the Commissioner of Agriculture at that time, Norman Coleman, basically argued that that meant also doing 
work on nutrition. And, you know, his concern and the concern of many at that point was that, you know, people spent a lot of their income on food. So this sort of working class income, you know, about half of that would go to, to the food budget. Yet most people, they thought, didn't really understand much about the sort of nutritive value relative to the costs of their of their foods. So they were they were buying food based on how it tasted and not really uh, with any other considerations in mind. While the role of public health policy has evolved over the years, now it's more state-led as opposed to a federal initiative, Ruiz says that there's a few major themes that haven't changed in the past century. Certainly, public health is is in many ways all about collective responsibility. Um, and the, the main thing that differentiates public health from, say, clinical medicine or, or you know, individual medicine is, in fact, that way of thinking. You know, much of what public health from sort of a theoretical perspective is concerned about is how you negotiate the balance of responsibility between, say, the state or some other sense of kind of collective action and the individual, right? So for example, like in a modern context, right, um, we have things like seatbelt laws, and there's regulations on car manufacturing and things like that. So there's a sort of collective responsibility to ensure that all cars have seatbelts and that they pass minimum safety standards and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, it's the individual driver or passenger's responsibility to put the seatbelt on. So there's always this kind of complex interrelation between what are the things that collectively as a society we do to improve health? And then what are the things that we allow individuals to choose for themselves. And of course, you know, we were seeing this debate again in the context of the pandemic with vaccination. And so this is something that at all points in time is sort of constantly negotiated and renegotiated, that tension between what you as an individual can choose and what as a society, uh, the society takes responsibility for and potentially even imposes on, on people. You know, a lot of public health developed around epidemics, right? That was sort of, that was a public health emergency. And so depending on the nature of the epidemic and depending on the severity and, and so on and so forth, um, you know, health departments or other, other health authorities in affected areas would develop policies and, and implement them. You know, there was certainly a lot of abuse of that sort of thing. So you could see um, if you look at, say, the bubonic plague outbreak in San Francisco around the turn of the 20th century. Places like Chinatown were completely quarantined, even though it had nothing to do with where there are actual cases of, of the disease. It just happened to do, it was just racist, right? It was just about containing Chinese people and not, and not white people. And one final similarity, one that will bring us full circle back around to World War II and the Health for Victory Club pamphlets. Certainly, there are private interests in public health sort of from the very beginning. Uh, you know, in nutrition, you know, food companies and companies that made household appliances, especially kitchen appliances, had a lot of incentive to be involved in not only funding things like nutrition research, but also in disseminating information as a, as a marketing or, or advertising initiative. But also, this is a time period when there's just a lot less regulation. So there's a lot less oversight of the kinds of claims that companies make about their products. There's a lot less regulation around how companies can market 
things. And so there, there are a whole wide range of ways that, that companies find to place products and uh, sponsor research and dissemination of information that you know looks very much like the kinds of things you would get from the government, often may have had government uh, you know, approval in terms of, of some kind of sign-off on the, on the product, but that still would have been produced by, by private companies and largely for commercial reasons. While the Health for Victory Club pamphlets were a project of the National Wartime Nutrition Program, a program with federal backing, they were prepared and distributed by the Westinghouse Electric and Manufacturing Company. Westinghouse, which even after several corporate mergers and acquisitions still exists to this day, was a major producer of household electronics. That includes everything from refrigerators to blow dryers. So it makes sense then why they had such a vested interest in distributing these pamphlets to mothers and wives on the home front. And that's one of the areas that concerns Dr. Marina Moskowitz, a professor in the Design Studies Department at the School of Human Ecology at UW-Madison. According to Dr. Moskowitz, in order to understand what made the Westinghouse mission to get appliances in the homes of Americans so successful, we have to look at what was happening at the turn of the 20th century. It was a time when the country was starting to look at how to use money in different ways. A new phrase, the standard of living, was coined. Mail-order catalogs were taking root. The first Sears, Roebuck & Company Consumer's Guide was published in 1894 with a promise to be the cheapest supply house on earth. Americans were creating a national identity based on the kinds of goods and services they purchased. People were talking about obtaining the American dream through home ownership. We start to see people buying things, not based on what was in their bank accounts, but also on how much buying power they had. We were a country that believed great things were coming our way, and we were going to get there through hard work, ingenuity, and a little thing called credit. At the end of the 19th century and beginning of the 20th century, we start to see new mechanisms for um, the establishment of credit. And I think it's really interesting because in a way we can think about debt and we can think about credit as two sides of the same coin, really. And debt is something that has really had a negative connotation up until this turn of the 20th century time period. And one of the things that places like banks, um, homeowners associations, even uh, stores that are starting to issue store credit are trying to put forward is that actually having access to credit can be a form of financial discipline, that it can be a way to organize your expenses so that you have um, regular expenses on a monthly basis. And one of the real pushes in the early 20th century was a real drive for home ownership. Um, and so that was obviously a really important way of thinking about credit, you know, giving people access to mortgages or um, savings and loan associations would do homeowner loans. And to sort of say to people, well, it's better to go into debt but be on the pathway to owning your own home than to be renting and always in essence, you know, lining the pockets of someone else. <laughs> um, so that's a very different approach to thinking about debt and credit that definitely becomes more popular in the very early part of the 20th century. It sounds to me like as a nation, we're ramping up to almost this national identity 
defined by whether or not you own a home and then what goods you have in that home, how much of a player you are in this standard of living, dare we say, American dream. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. So that phrase, American dream, is actually coined right at the beginning of the 1930s, um, which I think is really interesting that at this moment, right at the start of the Great Depression, people start to think about that. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's definitely a sense that access to an engagement in a consumer marketplace is part of, you know, everyone's sort of daily life. And we really look at the early 20th century. It's not to say that producer economies don't still exist in the U.S. They definitely do. They're still, this is still a vast agrarian population for large swaths of the United States. Um, But nonetheless, there's an expectation that people will engage in certain ways in a consumer marketplace. And there are mechanisms in place for them to do that. So everything from you know, something as sort of seemingly mundane as rural free delivery, which is the mail service, you know, U.S. postal service going all over the country, including to small rural areas that allow people to both, you know, to purchase goods and to have communication with other parts of the United States. Um, So there are mechanisms like that. And then mechanisms like new uh, mail order stores. So we have stores like Sears Roebuck, and Montgomery Ward that are distributing all sorts of household goods um, and including even houses themselves to different parts of the United States. And it's really interesting, I think, to think about because, you know, we're in this moment right now during the pandemic where so many of us are shopping from home and we have, you know, the UPS and DHL trucks coming by or FedEx trucks or whatever coming by every day with packages. But that's not really new. I mean, that was happening in the early 20th century as well for people who didn't have close geographic access to stores. But what that meant is that you had the ability for people across the country and kind of in different types of living situations to own similar kinds of goods. And I think that also fits into the idea of a standard of living in a kind of maybe more cultural sense, you know, that people can kind of envision themselves in similar types of environments with similar types of goods. I don't imagine that Black families, due to a number of reasons, socioeconomic reasons, have access to this standard of living that maybe their white middle-class counterparts did. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think, you know, one of the things that's interesting is I think there's a lot of interesting kind of conflation in American history of class issues and racial issues. And so um, you're absolutely right. I think that when we look at the early 20th century and the sort of vision of um, the middle class and the different ways that that gets expressed in the material world, that does tend to be a very white vision as it's expressed in things like advertising or, um, you know, these types of kind of sociological and economic reports that I was talking about earlier. I think one of the things about this, the concept of the standard of living in the earlier part of the 20th century is that it is also aspirational. I mean, it's a, it's kind of a measurement, but it's also kind of setting a standard to which people can aspire um, and join that middle class. But of course, um, you're absolutely right that not everyone has equal access either to those goods or even really in a way to that cultural vision. 
And, um, you know, I think that's something that in the, in the late 20th century and in the 21st century, obviously, we're really trying to address. And so then, Marina, we have this time period where people, there's this idea of a national standard of living happening. There's this American dream idea that's happening. But now this butts up against the Depression, mm-hmm. which butts up against World War II. So then mm-hmm. what happens to these this idea of standard of living and the American dream when you have these catastrophic events <laughs> happening? Yeah. yeah, no, that's a great question. So I think, you know, the um, I think the aspiration persists, obviously, um, but the reality often doesn't. And, you know, I think that happens for a couple of different reasons. I mean, one those issues around debt and credit and also, uh, you know, to put a kind of third term in their investment, that's obviously really starts to fall away at the beginning of the Great Depression, right, is, you know, people lose money on investments, they don't have access to credit that they had before. Um, and so there's a lot of, you know, sort of recalibration that needs to happen in terms of not only how you live your daily life, but but almost what your expectations should be for that. And there are very particular economic reasons for that. And what we get during World War II is a little bit different because it's it's still a question of access and access to goods and access to financial services. But the, you know, the reasons for the limitations on access are quite different. Um, so, you know, we have obviously a generation of people who are going off to fight in these new battlegrounds around the world. Um, And we have people in the United States who are finding kind of new pathways to work, whether that's um, women entering the workforce sometimes for the first time, whether that is African-Americans who are finding their way um, from agrarian jobs into industrial jobs. It's an interesting, I think during World War II, there's a sense of delay, but I think there's perhaps always an expectation that there will be the, kind of the promise of a post-war world um, that people will be able to kind of return to earlier ways of living. And that's certainly, you know, the impression that the federal government is trying to put forward, right, is to say, make sacrifices now because of this effort that we're all, you know, in it together. But this, there will be a kind of, um, you know, glorious moment at the end. And there's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of propaganda, there's a lot of uh, kind of um, cultural reproductions in film and in literature that are are really holding out this kind of promise of the future. But I think it's interesting because if we look at the whole first part of the 20th century, I think there is a, a scene that runs through that even with the, the economic differences that kind of go up and down. And that is about the ways in which um, domestic life and um, the ability to kind of afford that domestic life in different time periods and and what the sort of material circumstances might be, that that gets really tied into ideas about citizenship. Um, so, you know, the idea I was talking about earlier about encouraging homeownership, that's very much tied to um, ideas that people who have invested in a home will also be invested in a community and in local government and, you know, paying their taxes and voting and all sorts of, you know, kind of civic good. And I think 
during World War II, while there's far less access to some of those um, material benefits of life, there's still that kind of playing on that idea of citizenship and that active participation in the civic realm will, um, you know, will have material benefits in the long run. So I think there are some really interesting kind of coordination of ideas that goes right through the first part of the 20th century. It seems to me that there's a shift in what is considered to be living well, right? Mm -hmm. The idea was you had this, let's just say a refrigerator. You have this wonderful way of, you know, buying goods, buying foods, buying supplies, and putting them in your brand new Westinghouse or whatever the Zenith, whatever was the brand of time. <laughs> but then you get to World War II, and it's not so much about having the refrigerator and the goods to put in it. It's whether or not you have a victory garden, right? Mm-hmm. So these things that the standard of living in some ways comes outside of the home. It's showing your civic engagement by rationing, right? By rationing gas, by using your stamps, by having a victory garden, maybe by remaking those old clothes. So in my mind, I kind of equate it to the DIY movement now because I'm subscribed to the standard of living and living it's not enough. I have to show my work, if that makes Mm -hmm. any sense. Oh yeah, absolutely. And actually, I mean, this is something that I talk about a lot with my students today um, in terms of the, you know, for example, the environmental imperatives to, you know, reduce, reuse and recycle. And um, and we make these comparisons to the kind of necessity of, you know, the Great Depression period or World War Two and sort of talk about, well, you know, the necessity in the 1930s was an economic one. The necessity in the World War Two period was really, as you're saying, about, um, uh, you know, in, engaging in the civic sphere and kind of supporting a national drive um, during wartime. And and it's almost like, how can we make people today feel that same sense of urgency and necessity and also um, collectivity? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think the parallels are definitely there. And, um, you know, I, I think it's it's really interesting how you come out of this kind of turn of the century period where people are are thinking more about consumer societies. And then, yes, definitely during World War II, um, there are some, some shifts to, you know, think about home production again, right? And that isn't replacing um, industrial production, but it's that industrial production is being diverted for the war effort. And so, um, yeah, you know, you can help out by, as you say, growing your own food or um, remaking your clothes. And and in part, there are very necessary reasons there. You know, there's a huge shortage of fabric um, that's being diverted for the war effort. And um, so people have to get creative. Um, and so I think it's really interesting when we look at parallels to today and think about, well, how, you know, how can we obviously that was a a horrendously difficult time and it's not that we want to go back to that situation, but how can we kind of inculcate that same spirit of, you know, collectivity and creativity um, to, to produce as much as consume. And I think those are really interesting questions. I grew up on a farm out here in North Anoka County and, uh, the thing about 
World War II, there was a lot of rationing, uh, sugar, butter, meat, and we got books. Each person got a book, and uh, you could only use so much per month. And you went to the store, and you picked up whatever was rationed. Then it was marked off your book. You only got so much. You know, it wasn't a question of paying for it. It was whether it was available. For instance, I said sugar was rationed. Well, we had a neighbor who had honeybees, and he was given extra sugar that he could feed his bees over the winter. And uh, because we were on the farm, we churned our, our own butter. So he would give us extra sugar, and we would give him butter. And I think there were other people that may have done things like that, too. But the rationing was uh, bad, especially when I was in Bethel with my grandma, and uh, she'd get company, and she really had to stretch a pound of hamburger to make dinner for them. I wrote a lot of letters to young men that were in the service. Well, I wrote to my cousins, and I wrote to the neighbor boys, and I just told them what was going on at home. Uh, and like I say, I'm on a farm, and uh, those who were interested, I would say, uh, we had all our cows named and everything, and I'd say, well, uh, old Aunt Grace had twin calves this morning. You know, I'd write things like that. Our chickens were free range, and I had to find the nests. And uh, some, then when I'd go to my grandma Henriksen's in Bethel, then I would take her some eggs, that sort of thing. But we, uh, like I say, being on the farm, we, we did not suffer like others. I mean, even with meat, you know, if we wanted meat to go and whack the head off a chicken and have your chicken dinner. My dad would poach deer so he didn't have to butcher a hog. He would go out and it, there was no season and he'd go out and shoot a whitetail and uh, I remember this one time it was snowing and he knew where they bedded down and he went out to where they were crawled on his belly and looked this herd over that was down and uh, made a little noise so that heads popped up. And at that time of the year, the deer did not have antlers. And uh, so he looked and looked and finally decided he had seen a big buck and he shot it. And when he dressed it out, it was a doe, and she had twin fawns in her. And Dad never poached another deer. Not one. Mm -mm. But we ate that deer, and he dragged it home across the field in the snowstorm. And the next year, when the snow melted, 
it, it melted all around, but you could see that right where Dad had dragged his deer, because the snow had been packed down and it didn't melt as quickly as the other. Dad could have been drafted, but because he was a farmer, it was considered, uh, oh dear, I don't remember what the word would be, but it was uh, toward the war effort, Let it, let's put it that way. The farmers were contributing toward the war effort. You know, we've spent a great deal of time talking about the Health for Victory booklets, but what happens when you live them? Sarah Crevingston Lee is a historian and author and hosts a podcast based on the Health for Victory pamphlets. So if you're at all curious about how these books actually work, Sarah's the best person to ask. I've been fascinated with this time period since I was a teenager. And I really love food. And so for me, it was this type of exploration really made sense. Experimenting hands-on in whatever capacity, whether you're plowing a field and planting crops, you know, with the original tools, or you're diving into recipes in a kitchen using, you know, original tools and, you know, the recipes that they would have used. And the reason why these cookbooks, you know, really drew me in is because they were American cookbooks. When you go online, there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of British cookbooks or a lot of British recipes about rationing, but there's not really a lot about American rationing. And if there is, it's very confusing. And so these cookbooks just are American culture history and American food history. And so I really wanted to explore that. And because uh, these are really our food roots uh, and, and just I really wanted to learn more and more about that. The thing that made me giggle was the basic seven food groups. This is one of my favorite aspects of these Health for Victory food guides because they talk about like in any wartime cookbook, there's always a nutrition section. Every time I'm, I'm always surprised. But I mean, I shouldn't be because I, I do try and approach wartime cookbooks not biased, but I mean, I'm always surprised by these cookbooks. I always learn something new and um, just studying the nutrition aspect itself. I'm just always blown away by how cutting edge it was at the time. There was so much malnutrition, even though Americans were the best fed people in the world, like they were so malnourished and just looking at the food guide, like the government really desperately wanted their people to be healthy so that they could produce all the things they needed to produce and win this war. But actually, I agree with you, like this food chart sometimes does still make me giggle because butter and margarine is its own food group. Like, I just can't get over that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I kind of just really love that. <laughs> so. so how closely do you follow this? I've tried following some of the menus. In fact, I set myself a menu challenge one time where I was going to try and follow wartime menus for like a, a week for like each month. I was going to try and follow a week's worth of menus, but it just didn't work. And so I, I look at these menus and I just kind of sigh because I wish I could 
follow a whole month's with menus of wartime recipes, but I just, it doesn't work for me. But what I do do is I, I turn whenever I'm looking for a recipe, I do turn to my wartime cookbooks. I, the, the recipe I use all the time in these health for victory cookbooks is the biscuit recipe. I use that every time because it makes really good biscuits and it uses half the fat of a modern recipe. It's the best biscuit recipe ever. (laughs) Um, I also like, I also use the waffle recipe in here because I have a, like a vintage waffle maker. And um, so the vintage, a wartime recipe for waffles just works better in those. And so um, they, you know, make you whip the egg whites and put, fold them in. It's kind of a pain, but it really does make better waffles. So there's, there's a lot of recipes in here that I love that I turn to. Even the molasses cupcakes with lemon, uh, like the lemon molasses cupcakes are pretty amazing. Is What do you see when you're preparing these recipes? It's the biggest difference in looking at them through your, your modern lens. What is the, is it time? Is it ingredients? Is it? Like techniques? Maybe? Yeah, techniques. What, I, like what's I different? I definitely say the techniques for sure. They sifted flour like crazy. Um, That gets me every time because I'm kind of a lazy baker in some ways. And so I'm just like, oh, the sifting again. And um, (laughs) uh, because like sifting two or three times is just like, oh, but I do it because you kind of have to if you want it to turn out in the end because of the liquids and, and everything, you just have to do it. And the differences, like especially wartime recipes, the fats are going to be different. The sugar is going to be different. They were really focusing on thrift and nutrition and saving that fat and sugar. Because of the rationing, they really needed to focus on that. The other aspect, I mean, it's because, you know, the effort that they put into these meals you know, it seems like a whole lot. It is a lot of work. Their idea of cooking from scratch is is a heck of a lot of work. And they also had this concept of you do not cut your vegetables in advance like we do today because you would lose vitamins. And that was a huge no-no. And so today, they're all we're all about cutting our veggies in advance. So you have that prepared for the whole week. And back then, it's like, oh, my gosh, don't do that. Um, in fact, these health for victory cookbooks are really great for, for like time savers. They, they give you things you can do in advance that followed their philosophies of making sure you're keeping the vitamins in your food. Um, and so they have it set up and they tell you what to do the day before or that morning to, make the best use of your time. Sarah, how far have you taken this? How much of your life do you spend, I don't want to say in this time period, because you're not a time traveler, but how much no. of these do you do? Well, I don't know, you might be. Well, you kind of are when you think about it. I suppose you are. But how much of your, how much of your life is fashioned in this 40s lifestyle? Well, I, I don't pretend to like, you know, try and live the 40s because I, you know, it's not practical for me. And, and plus, I don't want to live in the 40s. I do love the, the clothes. I love the cars. Um, I love, you know, Captain America and Petty Carter just as much as the next person. <laughs> but um, 
I have to say, because I love food so much, my my head is in the 1940s, like cookbook space a lot. And so, and because I run a podcast about wartime cooking, it's just there a lot, uh, all the time. And I, you know, write World War II fiction as well. And so I'm doing research constantly. <laughs> so it's, it's, my head is there all the time. And so it's just, you you know, when you're thinking of those things all the time, you know, you just, um, I don't know, you're just in that headspace a lot. And I do like, I do have some 1940s patterns. Like I do do some sewing and I have, you know, 1940s sewing machines. So I do, and I do collect some antiques and things. So, I mean, I do, I really love things from that time period and I love technology from that time period you know, typewriters and things like that. So there's just so many things from that time that is just so stinking cool. <laughs> um, I don't know. I just really like learning from it by using it. Um, and uh, I think that's the best way you can learn about a time period is just by using those things um, and talking to the people who lived through that time, if you can. Um, so, yeah. So, Sarah, one last thing I'll ask you. What do you want to tell me about your relationships to these gods that I haven't asked you? I think the one of the biggest things I've learned from these guides is their guide to packing lunch boxes um, has had like one of the biggest impacts on me <laughs> and how I changed, um, like how I pack my husband's lunchbox. I mean, he he can pack his own lunchbox, and he does. But, like, I will, like, sneak in there and just check on it periodically <laughs> and see, like, what did he pack himself? And it's usually just, like, you know, not that great. <laughs> it's just, like, leftovers, which is usually what we have for lunch. But, you know, I'll sneak in some extra stuff because, you know, what I've learned from the, the lunchbox like the health for victory, they have actually a special edition that was just for packing lunch boxes. Their focus was making sure that workers ate their lunches. Like that was the biggest thing because if they ate their lunches, they were getting the nutrition they needed. They had the energy that they needed. There'd be less absences at work, less um, accidents at work, and there would be higher output at the factories. And so they like taught housewives, like how to pack these lunches. And it was so fascinating. It wasn't just like here, pack some really great sandwiches. You know, it was more than that. It was like packing, you know, several different sandwiches, but with different fillings, different types of bread and using different textures in the lunch. So having something soft, having something crunchy, using different temperatures. So having something cold, if you, and then having something hot, like always have either a hot soup or a hot beverage, like coffee or hot cocoa. And then always having a sweet in there, like a cookie or a cupcake, and then a surprise, like some candy or nuts. Keeping the lettuce separate from the sandwich, like wrapped in wax paper, so it'd be kept crisp and not wilted. And then pre-peeling the oranges or pre-cutting the apples just so that they would be more likely to be eaten because, you know, nobody wants to eat a messy orange at lunch. Like all of these tips were just kind of like mind blowing to me because 
recalling my school lunches as a child, it was always like very unpleasant because it was peanut butter and honey where the honey would always soak into the peanut butter and the bread and then carrot sticks every time. And I just like, I would try and swap with a friend for her pickle. Sometimes I was successful. And, (laughs) but I just, I just, you know, envied her pickle. And then years later, I told my mom this and she's like, Sarah, I would have given you a pickle. (laughs) Like what? All these years I suffered for nothing. And so... Um, anyway, I just, and I, I think my husband also enjoys his lunch more that if I, you know, add some variety in there, I, I do tuck some like little pieces of candy in there and I make sure he has some fresh fruit in there. So I just, I don't know. I think this aspect of these wartime cookbooks really can't go understated because the lunch was so, so important in wartime and they just, they can't talk about it enough in these cookbooks. You've been listening to Refrangible, a production of the Center for Design and Material Culture at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. A special thanks to all of our guests who contributed their expertise for this episode. David Ruiz, Marina Moskowitz, and Sarah Crevingston-Lee. And a very, very big thank you to our guests, Irma Phillips and Donna Smith, who were gracious enough to provide their personal stories about life on the home front during World War II. If you haven't already, be sure to hit subscribe and leave a review. You can also give us a shout out on social media and let us know what you think about the show or if you have any thoughts or recommendations for future episodes. Just tweet at UW underscore CDMC. And be sure to tune in next month when we discuss the cultural significance of the Maypole. For many European cultures, Maypole festivals have long marked the end of winter and the coming of spring, a time of warmth and plenty. For me, it's a bit of an obsession that started in grade school. As the world begins to celebrate our emergence from a global pandemic, we ponder the question, what is your Maypole? Keep an eye out for that episode on May 5th. Until then, I'm Jonah Chester. I'm your host, Jonathan Fields, and we'll see you next time.